This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm your host, Chris Elby. Jeff Hughes will be back next week. Today on the show, we're going to be speaking with Chris Webb, who is the assistant publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, and he's going to be sharing with us his insight into yesterday's presidential election in South Africa. And then I'll be throwing the microphone over to Cy Gonick, who will be speaking with Sam Gindon and Ian Angus, who are both Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective members, and they're going to be sharing their experiences at left-wing conferences that they each attended, both on opposite sides of the world, Sam in New York and Ian in Sydney, Australia. Also on the show, we'll have alerts, headlines, as well as Around the Left in Seven Days, and André Clément with Music is the Weapon. And now for the alert headlines for the week of April 23, 2009. Chrysler Canada workers burnt letters they had earlier received from the company president in a demonstration in Windsor. In the letter, company chairman Robert Nardelli and president Tom Lasorda suggested that Chrysler may cease operations in Canada unless the Canadian auto workers accepted pay and benefits considerably lower than that in the recently signed deal with GM. CAW President Ken Lowenza denounced what he called the unprecedented and outrageous series of attacks on Canadian auto workers and their union by business and political leaders, including the CEOs of Fiat and Chrysler Canada and the Federal Industry Minister. Lowenza suggested that Chrysler may be looking for reasons to pull out of Canada and blame the union for the move. Canadians are being misled by the president of the Canadian Medical Association, also known as the CMA, about the threat of privatized for-profit health care. Canadians are being misled by the president of the Canadian Medical Association, the CMA, about the threat of privatized for-profit health care, said Michael McBain, national coordinator for the Canadian Health Coalition. At the kickoff of a national campaign to save public health care, Mr. McBain charged that Dr. Robert Ouellet, president of the CMA, is presenting a false picture of European health care that could mislead Canadians about the threat to public health care posed by private for-profit services. Dr. Ouellet is the owner of a private for-profit health company. The coalition launched this campaign in New Brunswick because they think it is a province teetering on the brink of privatizing health care. Canada's greenhouse emissions are back on a growth trajectory despite bold promises from federal and provincial leaders to get serious about cutting discharges. The latest greenhouse gas inventory from Environment Canada shows that after a slight dip in 2004 to 2006, Canada's total emissions took off again, largely due to Alberta's oil sands, an increase in the number of vehicles and greater reliance on coal-fired electricity. An Environment Canada summary report shows that emissions are 33.8% above Canada's Kyoto commitment. We're laggards and obstructionists, said climatologist Andrew Weaver at the University of Victoria. The Obama administration took a first step towards limiting the gases that cause global warming after formally declaring that such emissions are a danger to public health. The official finding by the Environmental Protection Agency that carbon dioxide and five other gases threaten public welfare sets the stage for regulation of emissions from power plants. It will also force U.S. car manufacturers to make cleaner vehicles. Environmentalists celebrated the ruling as the most definitive action to break with eight years of climate denial in the U.S. The Environmental Protection Agency said the consequences of increased concentrations of those gases in the atmosphere were drought, flooding, wildfire, heat waves, and rising sea levels that had especially adverse impacts on the poor. Recently released U.S. Justice Department memos show that the Bush government approved the use of torture tactics on detainees. A federal judge ordered the release of the memos following a lawsuit filed by the American Civil Liberties Union. The government approved torture techniques that included waterboarding, repeated slamming of a prisoner's head against a padded wall, face slapping, 
sleep deprivation, withholding food, forcing prisoners to stand in uncomfortable positions for long periods, confinement in a cramped box, and putting insects into the box. Barack Obama has said that intelligence officials who use these interrogation techniques on so-called terrorism suspects will not be pre- will not be prosecuted for their actions. At the end of the Summit of the Americas in Trinidad, President Barack Obama said he saw positive signs from Cuba and Venezuela. Despite the upbeat statements, the summit ended without a final declaration as the 34 countries taking part failed to reach a consensus. Left-wing leaders from Bolivia, Honduras and Nicaragua, as well as Venezuela's president, felt the draft document omitted crucial issues, such as the U.S. embargo on Cuba. Mr. Obama conceded that decades of U.S. policy on Cuba had not worked the way the U.S. wanted it to. Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, emerged as a strong critic of U.S. economic policy. The United Nations Conference on Racism got underway in Geneva over the weekend. The conference was boycotted by major Western countries, including Canada, U.S. and Australia, even before it got started. Then, European Union delegates walked out at the opening session in response to a needlessly inflammatory anti-Israel speech by Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. However, all those countries except the Czech Republic returned after the speech and will participate in the remaining part of the conference. Despite the official Canadian boycott, there is still a Canadian presence at the conference, which includes members of Canadian labour unions, anti-racism groups and others. And those are the alert headlines for the week of April 23rd, 2009. And now for Around the Left in 7 Days. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. The Polaris Institute, in collaboration with the Sierra Club of Canada, hosts Tar Sands Showdown, campaign training workshop on April 24th and 25th in Hamilton. The workshop will illustrate how Ontario communities are affected by the tar sands and how Canada can move from dirty oil to a green energy economy. Admission is $5 to $25 sliding scale. Toronto's Mayworks Festival of Working People in the Arts begins on Saturday, April 25th and runs until Sunday, May 3rd. The multidisciplinary arts festival celebrates working class culture and is built on the premise that workers and artists share a common struggle for decent wages, healthy working conditions and a living culture. The festival opens with visual artist Fabiana Rodriguez on art as a political act and with the show In the Red, Revolution for Our Hearts. On Sunday, May 3rd, the Mennonite Central Committee Manitoba presents Gloria Neff Ziger of Amnesty International on the plight of Palestinian refugees on the Iraq-Syria border. The event begins at 7 and is at Sam's Place in Winnipeg. On Monday, May 4th, the Ontario Health Coalition holds a protest in Guelph as part of cross-Ontario actions against hospital cuts. Guelph General Hospital is planning to cut 16 inpatient beds and to eliminate 30 staff positions, including nurses. The action begins at 6.30 at St. George's Church. Also on May 4th, Manitoba Mayworks presents a film, Capitalism Hits the Fan, followed by a panel discussion with Cy Gonick, Radhika Desai, and Henry Heller. It takes place at the Winnipeg Centennial Library at 7 o'clock, and admission is free. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in 7 Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on Around the Left in 7 Days. Every spring, left-wing academic activists of one kind or another hold conferences and workshops in which they deliver papers, share ideas, and map out new goals and plans. This is a tradition that goes back several years, even decades, and 2009 is no exception. What is exceptional is that these meetings are taking place in the midst of an economic crisis that is rocking world capitalism. Super conditions to inspire left-wing thinkers, perhaps. To pursue this, Canadian Dimension editor and publisher Cy Gonick talks with two friends of Alert who recently returned from conferences in different parts of the world. Sam Gindin and Ian Angus are both members of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective. First off, Cy talks with Sam Gindin from his home in Toronto. 
Hi, Sam. Welcome again to Alert. Hi, Sai. Good to be here. Uh, you just returned from a conference in New York City called the Left Forum. And, you know, I remember attending this gathering a few decades ago when it was called the Socialist Scholars Conference. But there uh, was no crisis back then. Nobody was seriously thinking that capitalism was in question. Now, I know you've attended these kinds of conferences in the past as well, but one would expect that in the context of today's crisis that something different would be happening, something less abstract and more urgent. And if I dare to say, even a belief that socialism could once again be on the agenda after an absence of, what, 50 years, 70 years? Mm-hmm. What did you find, Sam, at this uh, Left Forum uh, conference last week? Well, not just at this Left Forum, but I, I think more generally, both the uh, depth of the crisis and the extent to which uh, uh, the elites have been discredited and a lot of questions about uh, capitalism have been raised uh, has meant that, uh, yes, there's been much more interest in talking about trying to understand the crisis, uh, there's a lot of movements who are now move, uh, asking, how did we get here? Don't we have to understand economics more now? We've ignored it too long. Don't we have to talk about capitalism and what that means? So I think this was part of it. Uh, the, the conference was very large, uh, over 2,000 people. Uh, you know, this is a place where the few socialists that are remaining do gather each year, so there's always discussions of socialism. I think the difference this time was that... Uh, there was a lot more confidence. There was a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, there were more labor panels than ever before, and I think that was one indication of trying to make it a little bit abstract, less abstract. And there were more activist organizations involved. Um, Can you give some examples, Sam? Well, uh, let me just say, first of all, I, I just this is an impression. It might, uh, it's just my impression. Um, I found that the discussions... Uh, of academics, while certainly raising the broader questions, were still quite limited because they were only discussions. And in a sense, this isn't a forum for really doing organizing. So you you can have a plenary where people talk about a socialist party and socialist organizing. But I got the sense that what happens in that context is you have the plenary, and when it's over and everyone's uh, had a consensus on the need for a socialist party. You now wait for next year so you can have the same discussion with the same consensus. Uh, rather than, for example, if it was really an organizing meeting, you might break into workshops and say, okay, what does this seriously mean? What are the hard questions we'd have to answer? So those discussions were exciting and very good, and a lot of very impressive stuff was going on. But what I found especially exciting was that uh, there are quite a few people who are doing grassroots organizing. And they really wanted to participate in these discussions, uh, and they were very sober and yet very ambitious. And I found that exciting. In some ways, uh, I thought that there was actually things going on in the U.S. that uh, were beyond what was happening in Canada. There's uh, the Miami Workers Center was doing very exciting stuff. There's a group in San Francisco Bay Area which, which were doing exciting stuff. And by exciting stuff, what I mean is that not only are they organizing in sections of the working class, uh, which generally haven't been touched by uh, the unions. Uh, but they're doing it very much from a class perspective. They very much wanted to engage Marxist analysis, which they found was the only kind of analysis that was useful uh, w- with all its limits. They wanted to go beyond Marxist analysis. They, they thought there were weaknesses, but they really thought that they had to start with political economy. They had to think about the state. Uh, they were thinking very much about cadre development, and I don't mean that in some... Uh, Lenin, a sense of uh, doing things from the top. This was about actually developing cadres right in the communities at the base so that people could feel more confident about uh, not just analyzing but moving on to strategize. So that was very exciting. Did you get a a sense of um, a a new agenda emerging? Yes. I mean, I think we have to be honest about it. These things take some time. There's still a lot of shock and uh, numbness, especially in the labor movement, uh, which is one of the problems. Uh, I didn't get a sense that much of this is going on in the labor movement in the United States or in Canada. Uh, There's been some discussions in the public sector 
uh, I've been invited to speak to a number of locals and uh, to QP Ontario, and there was a lot of interest there in talking about the larger questions and interests that I haven't seen before. But in the private sector, for example, where people are really getting hammered, uh, and you'd think that they'd have to raise larger questions because they're trapped into this box when they limit themselves to just being defensive, I didn't see much of that going on. In the no. activist groups in the States, I, I did get a sense. I mean, they were both being very sober about what was ahead of them. They weren't claiming to be further advanced than they were, but they certainly were putting things on the agenda in terms of saying, look, we're going to have to talk about reaching beyond our own communities or beyond our own sectors. That work is absolutely important, but it's, it, does, it just doesn't match what we're up against, and that's clear. And so we need to develop national ties, and people were doing that. They were forming links across cities in terms of questions about access to the city. They were raising environmental questions. Uh, you know, the question of imperialism and empire, for example, was something that all the activist groups that I saw there were raising. So it was really uh, exciting in those terms. I guess going back to what I started to say earlier, uh, we just have to remember that in the Great Depression it took an awfully long time before things happened. It wasn't until, you know, from 1929 to 1932, there wasn't that much going on. The odd demonstrations, 32 things began to happen, and the labor movement it didn't really happen until about 34. That's good to uh, keep in mind. Sam, yeah. let's talk about, uh, is there anything similar happening in this country and Canada? Well, of what, of what you, you know, discovered? from... You know, from a Toronto perspective, um, there certainly has been an interest in analysis like I've never seen before. Uh, groups which used to be relatively insular, dominated by their daily day struggles, were now uh, trying to hold forums and do internal education on the crisis and actually asking uh, left academics to come in and speak to what's happening. Uh, how to understand capitalism. Uh, so, th so that's been very exciting. And it's, it's happened in all kinds of, you know, at the, at the university, but in places at the university where it didn't happen before. It's happening in Montreal as well. Uh, the left wing in Solidaire, for example, has had some of these forums. So it's happening. I guess the question there is uh, people can get interested in uh, understanding the crisis and go to a couple of meetings about the crisis, but then it can fade away. There's a good initiative in Toronto where there's uh, some attempt to get the various movement groups together to run some day-long schools and then think about how to develop some people who can spread this further. But all these questions keep coming back to what kind of organizational expression is there going to be to this so that we can actually emerge out of this stronger, and whether in the course of this crisis, like the, like the crisis of the Depression, we're going to see new new forms of organization emerge, whether it's in the labor movement or more generally. The I other thing that's happening in Canada, I just speak to something that's happening around the socialist project. Should mm -hmm. you like me to just elaborate on that a bit? Yes, and maybe just say a very few words about the socialist project. I'm sure most of our readers don't have never heard never heard the of socialist it. project uh, emerged out of an initiative about a decade ago to think about uh, how to rebuild the left more than. Uh, a movement less than a party. Uh, and it ran into all kinds of problems, I think, because it wasn't prepared to, do, to uh, deal with organizational questions. I think we were organizationally weak. But it's, it's remained over those years, and it's tried to uh, keep some kind of uh, socialist ideas on the agenda. It's been doing educational work. It has a bullet, which is... Uh, I was actually surprised at the left forum with the number of people who came up to me and said that they read it on a regular basis and passed it on to activists. And we had a labor committee that's functioning, that continued to function since the end of the uh, 90s. So what we've been trying to do is think about how we bridge some of the gaps between the movements and the labor and labor activists. Uh, it seems that uh, that just hasn't happened at all. These have been really two solitudes. So we decided to try to have a forum uh, to talk about the crisis. Uh, as we thought about it, we thought it would be better to wait until September, partly on the basis of, well, maybe some things will happen that we can build on, but also because we thought it would, rather than just having another event, why don't we have an assembly that can really be a working assembly and use the time between then and now to organize? So what we're trying to do is to facilitate labor activists, generally rank-and-file activists, and movement people to get together 
to start planning this jointly, but also to have internal forums so we can discuss uh, our strengths as organizations and our weaknesses uh, and how this crisis is going to affect us. Can you mention a few of the grassroots uh, movements? uh, OCAP has been involved, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, uh, STOP, which is also a poverty organization that's been very involved in uh, not just food banks, but actually growing food uh, for the poor and uh, green strategies within the city. Uh, No One is Illegal, which is uh, doing some very interesting organizing work around uh, the question of status in immigrant uh, communities. Uh, they tend to lean in an anarchist direction, and yet they have an incredibly strong sense of organizing. Okay. Uh, so all their members are really seen as organizers who uh, all of them work in other, work with other organizations. So you'd have two people who would be sent to different to one community, two people to another community, so they work on an ongoing basis and then they can pull this together. Uh, there's been various uh, community groups. Uh, the meetings we've had have had members from the CAW, Steel, uh, uh, QP, uh, OPSU, mm-hmm. uh, UFCW. Um, so it's a fairly broad group, and the Workers' Action Center from Toronto is very important. Uh, also, the Immigrant Workers' Center from Montreal has wanted to sit in on the planning meetings because mm-hmm. they see this as something that... Uh, they want to link up to and maybe think about whether this is an initiative they'd like to take in Montreal. The newly formed Workers' Action Center uh, in Windsor. Uh, so this is happening outside of Toronto as well, is it's it? It's happening really in Toronto, be just because of, you know, originally we thought of doing something larger, but we decided that mm-hmm. we really do have limited capacities and we should concentrate where we could do it. But we also want to invite some people from outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that uh, we can maintain those ties. But I think the real, you know, its, it's, it's focus is going to be Toronto. Uh, okay. You know, we're, in fact, we, we'd like to talk to people about, from Winnipeg as well to come. Mm-hmm. So it'll be from Toronto, but hopefully there'll be people from outside participating in it, and maybe that'll kind of spread its development as well. Okay. Sounds promising. Yeah, and I, I think what we'd like to do in terms of working towards the assembly is to develop enough of a relationship that maybe we could come out of the, uh, the first assembly with some working committees that can take solidarity between groups further, that can think about some uh, citywide campaigns that uh, nobody would embark on on their own, such as free transit in the city, and maybe even think about, and again, this is all very tentative, and the pace of it depends on where the participants want to go, whether we could think about a citywide class-based organization uh, and then move on from that kind of assembly and see what those working groups can come up with to maybe actually move ahead with uh, something more ambitious. Okay, Sam, it's excellent. I think maybe what we could do is put some of this information on the CD website Great. and invite people to look at that and, and make, make contact with what you people are doing in Toronto. So thanks Terrific. a lot, Sam, and hopefully I'll see you at a conference one of these days. Great. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Sam Gindon uh, of Toronto talking with me about the uh, conferences taking place in North America and uh, plans for uh, one in Toronto about uh, building a anti-capitalist uh, socialist movement. And now Cy talks with Ian Angus in his home just outside of Ottawa. Hello, Ian, and welcome once again to Alert. Thanks for having me, Cy. Right. Ian, uh, you've just returned from a speaking tour of Australia, and I believe you told me you were invited to speak at the World at the Crossroads Conference in Sydney, sponsored by the Green Left Weekly, and that you also toured a number of other cities, speaking to various groups like Eco Socialist Network and Climate Action. And uh, we know that climate change and eco-socialism are very special interests of yours. And we will uh, have an opportunity to talk about that in a moment. But first, tell us something about the flavor of the meetings you attended. Was there anything different about them in view of the global economic crisis we all find ourselves in? Well, I think um, uh, everywhere I went, there was certainly a sense of the, uh, the left having new opportunities 
Um, in fact, in some places, feel, the feeling that perhaps the resources weren't up to meeting all those opportunities. But I was in five different cities in quite different parts of Australia, and in all of them, the meetings were a um, little larger than they'd been used to. And more important than that, in all of them, the, the, the radical left there was very involved in a whole range of activities related to the union movement or related to uh, uh, climate change, related to uh, uh, support for the Tamils, things like that. Um, in general, the left seemed to be on the move, on the move in Australia. And uh, so a feeling of optimism? Well, I don't think it's a, it's a feeling of tremendous optimism right away. I mean, certainly the, uh, the economic crisis uh, has caused a lot of people sort of to pull their heads in and be a little concerned about not being exposed. But, uh, yeah, a sense that uh, things are starting to happen and certainly that uh, among the population at large there is certainly more willingness to, to listen to a socialist viewpoint now than there might have been a year ago. Can you say a bit about uh, who, were, who were at these meetings? Well, the, uh, the meetings I spoke at outside of Sydney, and I have to distinguish that because in Sydney it was a large conference, um, I would say that they were about half and half students and uh, working people. Um, we got people from the Green Party and especially from the Young Greens coming out, which was uh, uh, very good because usually the Greens don't talk to the socialists and vice versa, and uh, that was, I think, a quite positive development. Um, People around David Spratt's campaign, David Spratt is very well known in Australia as the author of a book called Climate Code Red, and um, he, uh, the people that he's managed to get very interested in the whole climate issue uh, certainly were turning out in considerable numbers. Now, mm -hmm. uh, um, I know one of your major interests these days, as mine also, is uh, eco-socialism, and... Um, could you say something about the movement in Australia, which apparently is uh, well beyond what we've been managed to achieve in Canada so far? Well, I suppose a good starting point is to say that a paper with the name Green Left Weekly is the largest, you know, the most widely read left-wing paper in the country, uh, which is, I think, indicative that there is a uh, in the left much more awareness of the importance of ecological issues than than I see in North America, for example, as as being central. And uh, in addition, uh, th their Green Party is considerably to the left of ours, which makes a difference. In um, Adelaide, there actually has been a group set up called the Eco-Socialist Network, which has been quite successful in uh, building connections across the country, uh, holding regular meetings, sponsoring events, and so on. Uh, and just briefly, c uh, can you distinguish for our, our listeners uh, what is... Um distinguishable of the uh, eco-socialists relative to the Green Party? Well, the, the Green Party uh, there certainly is not a socialist party. It's a party that believes there are capitalist solutions that, uh, uh, ca uh, you know, that a cap-and-trade solution, for example, might solve their, uh, their problems, although the, the one the government is proposing they're generally disagreeing with. But they are not, certainly not in favor of major social change. They focus rather exclusively on, on, on environmental issues. Whereas the uh, eco-socialist current views uh, socialism, in essence, as the solution to the environmental problems, and at the same time says it's not going to be real socialism if we don't deal with environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there are signs in Australia of a interest in eco-socialism? There are certainly are signs. Well, as I say, you've got a, a, the, the Green Left Weekly, which is a newspaper which is both socialist and green, uh, has a quite wide circulation. And the, uh, uh, from my own experience, the Green Left, that's, uh, excuse me, the, the, the Young Greens, which is the student group of the Green Party, there seems to be a growing left wing there. And so what are they doing that we're not doing in Canada? Well, I think one of the factors here is, of course, that the ecological crisis is very, very obvious in Australia. Um, of all of the wealthy countries in the world, it's one where um, drought is widespread. The huge fires of this past summer have been uh, were uh, extraordinary there in the past couple of months. Uh, I was in Melbourne, and there was a period there when the streetcars wouldn't run because the heat got so hot. You know, it got so hot that the uh, tracks actually warped. Hmm. So. Um, and and their major river system, the Murray Darling, is, is drying up, which is killing um, agriculture. One of some of their main agricultural areas in Melbourne. One of the big local issues is a uh, 
the city government is actually having to build desalination plants because uh, they're starting to, they're just running out of fresh water. So I think in Australia there is simply a, 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 a great deal of awareness of this issue. I think you can also say that Australia is one of the very few countries where the left thought about this issue quite early. Um, Green Left Weekly was launched, I guess, must be 15, 17 years ago uh, as a coming together of, of socialist groups and green groups to launch a joint paper. And uh, in, in that sense, they're uh, doing well simply because they started before we did. Right. Maybe uh, as we wind up this interview, and you could uh, indicate to our to our listeners your uh, your website, which um, is climate and capitalism. It's at climateandcapitalism.com is the address, and it aims to be a journal for discussion and uh, education about. Uh, both green issues and socialist issues, and in particular about the intersection of those uh, two uh, critical social questions, the, the need for social change and the need for stopping climate change. Okay, that's great, Ian. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was Ian Angus speaking to uh, myself, Saigonic. Um, Ian uh, was, is in his home in um, just outside of Ottawa. On the very day this episode of Alert is being recorded, a very important election is happening in South Africa. It is widely anticipated that the African National Congress, which has ruled South Africa ever since it led the fight against the former apartheid regime, will again be re-elected with a very substantial majority. The ANC has a new leader, the controversial Jacob Zuma, who ousted the former leader and South African president, Thabo Mbeki. We have with us on the phone Chris Webb, a native of South Africa. He now resides in Winnipeg and is the assistant publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine. Welcome to Alert, Chris. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us this afternoon. And first off, tell us about Jacob Zuma, his background, experience, and his political beliefs. Uh, well, Jacob Zuma is uh, hes one of these contradictory figures in South African politics and that he... Uh, he kind of has this left-wing bombastic rhetoric, but he kind of walks a, a right-wing line in his, uh, his economic and his political views. But to give you some background, he's been a, a member of the ANC since he was 17 years old. He's now uh, 66. Um, he's from a, a very working-class family, uh, traditional Zulu family in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. And um, he's definitely one of these fully-fledged uh, freedom fighters. He was a veteran of the anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, he served on the ANC executive um, in various other countries in Africa during the anti-apartheid struggle. And um, most importantly, he served uh, 10 years on Robben Island along with the likes of uh, Mandela, Sisulu, and other uh, ANC uh, anti-apartheid freedom fighters. So um, he's been very instrumental in the development of the ANC uh, in the anti-apartheid years. And, um, and, even, and even after that, before 1994, he was very instrumental in, uh, in securing the release of political prisoners in South Africa in the 90s. Um, basically, he rose up through the ANC ranks and became vice president in 1999, and um, then started a favor with Thabo Mbeki, who was the president at the time, and he was uh, basically asked to resign in 2005. Um, he, he's a, a populist figure um, who definitely enjoys the support of uh, a lot of South Africa's poor majority, and he also enjoys the support of the South African Communist Party and the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which are both very big uh, political forces in the country. Right. And um, it's, it's the support uh, amongst the poor and amongst the, uh, the union that, uh, that is going to bolster him in this election race, and that's going to definitely win the elections for him. And um, it's pretty significant as well that uh, Jacob Zuma is a, a Zulu as well, which is... Um, um, Thabo Mbeki and Nelson Mandela were also speaking, and uh, this is going to be the first Zulu president of the country. So he does retain a lot of support in his old homeland of KwaZulu-Natal. Um, yeah, Jacob Zuma, I mean, I think when we look at his history, uh, the ANC that he's helped create over the last couple of years is, is very different from the ANC that, that we've seen under Nelson Mandela and in the pre, uh, pre-democracy years. Um, I mean, under Mbeki, where he served as vice president, economic growth has been at 5%. He helped create a very prosperous business environment. Um, but uh, as I said, very little has changed for uh, the majority of the population in South Africa. I mean, there's still very high levels of, of unemployment, uh, 
housing is a huge issue, electricity is a huge issue, and water still remains a big issue. And, um, you know, uh, Zuma and Mbeki promised that there would be major land redistribution and land reform, but uh, right. over 80% of the land is owned by a very small white minority in South Africa. So, I mean, these are all issues that Zuma is going to have to uh, have to deal with now that he's in power. But, I mean, given his record before, seeing as he was vice president, he hasn't dealt with these back then. So um, it's going to be very difficult for him to come in and very difficult for his supporters to, to reconcile this image that they have of, of Jacob Zuma as being this, uh, this carryover from the anti-apartheid struggle, this, uh, you know, kind of this glorious leader who, uh, who led the, the fight for democracy in South Africa, now coming into power at uh, at least personally, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people feel the same way about this, is that he's gonna he's gonna disappoint, and uh, I don't think people should be too surprised about that. And um, so, sorry, I just want to move on to uh, talking a little bit about the fact of he does have some charges against him. So this could correct, yeah. this could be a bit of an issue, uh, even though his popularity is so great. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes when things like this come to the forefront, the people start to question it. So he's been charged with um, rape, corruption. What do you make of these charges, Chris? Yeah, I mean, the charges that have come against him have definitely scarred his reputation, uh, at least in, in the press. But, um, I mean, going back to his rape trial, it's, uh, it was revealed in 2006 that he had, uh, he had sex with an HIV-positive woman. He was later acquitted on rape charges. But something that came up in this trial that was of, of great concern to uh, not only women activists in South Africa, but anti-AIDS activists, was that he had sex with an HIV-positive woman without a condom and then later claimed that uh, he could um, get rid of the AIDS or get rid of the virus by having a shower afterwards, which... <laughs> Obviously, it's not the case at all. And, uh, you know, this was a huge concern for AIDS activists. There was somebody coming into power who had these beliefs about a disease that's affecting uh, huge numbers of the population. So so that's a big concern as well. And, I mean, he, he was acquitted on these charges, but uh, there were still some questions remaining. The, the corruption trial, um, I mean, there have been two of them so far, and it's related to uh, his financial advisor, uh, who, whose name is Shaiba Sheikh, who was convicted on massive fraud and, and corruption charges uh, a couple of years ago. And um, it was related to a multi-billion rand arms deal that uh, that was going on in South Africa at the time. And there were some transactions between Sheikh and between Zuma, and these came out, and the National Prosecuting Authority of South Africa went after Zuma, um, which was a very controversial thing to do at the time because he was vice president. And because of these charges that were laid against him, uh, Thabo Mbeki, the president at the time, asked him to resign. Um, it was later revealed in a, a huge political scandal that uh, Mbeki was playing some sort of role in politically interfering with the trial process, okay. uh, which is why uh, the ANC executive eventually asked Mbeki to resign. So, I mean, definitely this corruption trial uh, has, you know, dogged his, uh, his political career and, and has definitely scarred him over the last couple of years. Um, and I think people in South Africa largely... I mean, at least people that I speak to back there are, are very wary of Zuma, and they are quite disillusioned by the ANC, right. um, especially around this rape and corruption trial. But, uh, I mean, the reality for a lot of people back there is just there's not much of an alternative for them. Okay, um, except I mean, there's one, I'm going to just uh, interject right here, there is uh-huh. a group within the ANC that's formed uh, called Congress of the People, C-O-P-E, and, you know, quickly tell us, you know, why did they split from the ANC, and, and what do they represent, Chris? Yeah, I mean, when the COPE formed out of the ANC, it was really hoped that it would be uh, a really uh, an alternative to the ANC, and it would encourage some sort of democratic debate and participation. Um, it was formed uh, basically when Becky retired from the ANC, when he was asked to retire. Um, and then a couple of ministers left with him, basically out of solidarity, saying that, you know, they didn't feel comfortable serving in the ANC when there was all this uh, cronyism and corruption going on. So so basically it was formed out of dissatisfied ANC ministers and politicians. And, um, you know, some people at the time thought that it was a very good thing that would, that would encourage some sort of uh, coalition and debate, you know, a sure. alternative to the ANC. Sure. Um, it's likely that they'll get about maybe 10% in these elections that are going on right now when the okay. numbers are just coming in. Right. And uh, and their platform isn't radically different from uh, from what the ANC's platform was back in 1994. Okay. Um, basically, free market principles, uh, a multiracial, multicultural participation right. in society, and tough on crime, uh, building the economy by promoting job growth, 
and uh, defending the constitution. So basically, it was it was a reaction against the uh, corruption yeah, that was going on within the ANC. And they built quite a bit. Yeah. We'll talk about uh, another party. Obviously, I know you had mentioned uh, the South African Communist Party and a union, the Congress of the South African Trade Unions. Now, they've long been involved, as you talked about earlier, with the ANC. How is their involvement um, going to increase, or will it increase, uh, if Zuma gets elected? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the real opposition in the ANC and the real opposition in South Africa today uh, is formed by Kasatu, uh, the, the trade union movement, and the South African Communist Party. I mean, within the ANC, these groups are actually the real opposition. I mean, they've been the ones that have been criticizing Mbeki's privatization uh, and deregulation of the economy for years. And, um, you know, any sort of neoliberal moves that Mbeki has been taking. Uh, it's been a bit inconsistent, but the Communist Party and the trade union movement have been right up there criticizing him. Um, around 2002, uh, the trade union movement and the CP um, were getting quite upset with what Mbeki was doing, because basically he wasn't listening to any of their demands at all. So they expelled uh, a whole cast of Mbeki loyalists from the Communist Party and from the trade union movement. And it was at this time that the uh, SACP considered running an independent political party. Okay. Um, Eventually what happened is that there was an ANC convention uh, back in 2005 and the trade union movement and the Communist Party decided instead of forming a separate political party, they would try and back Jacob Zuma within the ANC, try and put him in power and then try and reform the ANC from the inside. Uh, so that's what, that's what they've been doing right now. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, they're, gonna be, they're quite pleased that uh, Jacob Zuma is going to be coming into power. So they're going to um, be really supporting him, and there's going to be an increase. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they will play an increased role, at least, um, I'd say, behind the scenes. But, um, you know, there's definitely a core membership within the ANC that's still very much uh, pro-business, that's still very much uh, related to the policies that Mbeki held. So right. I think that, um, you know, at some point within the, in the future, the trade union movement and the Communist Party are going to become just as disillusioned with Jacob Zuma as a lot of the population is right now. And I think at that point in the future, they're going to have to realize that um, they can either continue working with the ANC as they're doing right now to try and change things or right. form some sort of alternative political organization. I want to read an editorial uh, of a Mandela magazine, um, and it's about the expectation of a Zuma-led government, mm -hmm. and I want your comments on it. So here we go. One suspects, and hopefully the coming years will prove us wrong, the new ANC will be populist in rhetoric, conservative in its economic policies, and lethargic ecologically. Rather than confronting the power of business, they will ultimately defer to them. Rather than unlocking a radical program of redistribution, they will rant and rave. Rather than cutting the umbilical cord of coal, fire, and fossil-fueled energy systems, we will see renewables approached as supplementary. What's your comments on that, Chris? Yeah, um, I know Amantla is a very good magazine. I'd recommend people read it online if they get a chance. Um, I think that this is entirely correct statement. I mean, um, the ANC has done this for years, and that they've hidden behind this uh, this rhetoric of of change and of liberation and of increased jobs and the promises that were that they wrote uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle. But they fail to deliver upon all of these, and when they often fail to deliver upon them, they find the scapegoat, and uh, and that's always been the case. So yeah, I, I think the policies, their economic policies, will continue to be conservative, uh, but they'll hide behind some sort of uh, phony left-wing rhetoric. And um, eventually, I mean, I can see that in five or ten years' time, people, you know, won't stand for this anymore and will demand some changes. So unless there's a radical program that's being, you know, bolstered from people on the ground, I don't see any change that's going to happen above in the ranks of the, uh, the ANC or in the SACP as well. Okay, well, thank you so much, Chris, uh, for your insight in, in the South African election and, and who will be the next president. Thanks for your time. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, and that was Chris Webb, a native of South Africa, as well as the assistant publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine right here in Winnipeg. You are listening to Music as the Weapon. I'm André Clément. Last week on Alert, we featured an interview with acclaimed Somali-Canadian hip-hop artist Kanan. Kanan, arguably the only famous Somali in North America, was on the show to discuss the prevailing narrative in the mainstream media regarding piracy in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Somalia. Kanan argued that the truth about Somalian piracy is more complicated than the story we're being fed. For instance, 
70% of Somalis believe that the pirates are filling the role of national defense that's been left vacant due to instability in the country. National defense, they say, against profiteering Western interests, coming to dump nuclear toxic waste in their waters and to steal all of the area's fish reserves. If you listened to the show last week, I'm sure you enjoyed the interview as I did. In light of this, it's fitting that this week we hear a few tracks from Kanon's new album, entitled Troubadour. Here's a song dedicated to Kanon's homeland that talks about these mysterious pirates we've been hearing all about. It's called Somalia. It's an old, I admit it here, the city code is lock and load Any minute this rock and roll, and you rock and roll And feel your soul leaving, it's just the wrong glance That'll leave you not breathing I'm not particularly proud of this predicament But I'm born and bred in this tenement, I'm sentimental, what? Plus it's only right to represent my hood and whatnot So I'm about to do it in the music, in the movie to the chase, pan across to the face I'm right there, freeze frame on the street name Oops, wait a minute, this is where the streets have no name And the drain of sewage, you can see it in this boy How the hate is brewing Cause when his tummy tucks in, fuck the pain is fluid So what difference does it make entertaining through it? Some get high mixing coke and gunpowder sniffing She got a gun but could have been a model or a physician So what you know about the pirates terrorize the ocean To never know a simple day without a big commotion It can't be healthy just to live with such a steep emotion And when I try and sleep, I see coffins closing So what you know about the pirates terrorize the ocean To never know a simple day without a big commotion It can't be healthy just to live with such a steep emotion And when I try and sleep, I see coffins closing Yeah, yeah We used to take barbed wire Mold them around discarded bike tires Roll them down the hill on foot blazing Now that was our version of mountain bike racing Damn! Do you see why it's amazing When someone comes out of such a dire situation And learns the English language just to share his observation Probably get a Grammy without a grammar education So fuck you school and fuck you immigration And all of you who thought I wouldn't amount to constipation And now I'm here without the slightest fear and reservation They love me in the slum in the native reservations The world is a ghetto administering deprivation But mommy didn't raise no fool, did she hoyo? I promised I would get it and remain strictly loyal Cause when they get it then they let it all switch and spoil But I just illuminated it like kitchen foil A lot of mainstream niggas is yapping about yapping A lot of underground niggas is rapping about rapping I just wanna tell you what's really cracking lacking Before the tears came down, this is what happened so what you know about the pirates terrorize the ocean To never know a simple day without a big commotion It can't be healthy just to live with such a steep emotion And when I try and sleep, I see coffins closing So what you know about the pirates terrorize the ocean To never know a simple day without a big commotion It can't be healthy just to live with such a steep emotion And when I try and sleep, I see coffins closing You are listening to Music is the Weapon, and this week we are featuring the second studio album by Somali Canadian hip hop artist Kanan. The album is entitled Troubadour, and like its name, it runs a broad territory of musical styles. I guess that's what you get when you mix East African and North American music in a globalized world. The new album also features several collaborations. Here is one such happening with Jamaican Damien Marley, the youngest son of late reggae legend Bob Marley. This one's entitled, I Come Prepared. Set time! Now calling all real revolutionary youths. Gang Marley alongside Canaan. Gunpowder philosopher where some boy feel like. Pepper! Huh. I'm 
block is sold How could he be from the deepest darkest of zero To become king in New York like the Nero And he ain't even from New York, that's what's weird, yo But where he's from, they just ret So come now, don't you try to play the hero Around here, we got pirates with torpedoes Alongside all the warlords and beardos The only city niggas blacker than tuxedos Baby girl, let me get all up in your earlobe And if you shut me down, you can kill my ego Which is my enemy, makes you my amigo So either way, you and I are but an needle And they say I might become big as a beetle But I don't let it get to my head or feet, yo And I got more street cred than legal But just in case, we keep a big, this eagle Yeah, I come prepared, I come prepared Sonographers, what I be Superman, superstar, give me super fat dough So I can be super rich and super fat So, but maybe not super fat But super stacked though So I can fix some money shit on super back low How many immigrants are in this here sedan? And is anyone carrying any contraband? Not really, but I'm late for my concert, man And here's a card from my lawyer, Mr. Sam Goldman Yeah, I come prepared I come prepared I come prepared Displacement of peoples due to the ongoing civil wars in Somalia is a tragedy. Kanan was subject to this displacement and found refuge in Canada with his mother as a young teenager. But he never forgot his roots and through his art has been compelled to expose the truth and shine a light on a very dark situation that afflicts his homeland. If there is one redeeming element about Kanan becoming a refugee, it's that the people of Somalia have in him a dedicated ambassador and activist in the West. The next song is entitled America, but it's not what you'd expect. I find this one very interesting. It uses a sample from an old Ethiopian funk tune from the 1970s, and I warn you, it's infectious. You may just want to start dancing wherever you are right now. What's especially cool about it is how Kanon seamlessly goes from English to his native Somali tongue. Again, this one is entitled America. For Music is the Weapon, I'm André Clément. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. 
مريرا سبحانه مرة شبيلة حيرته مرة قفيفة هوته مقا عاقا إيشك مقا إيقوا شرف شرف حاجة ويان أقل هذا حريرته لنا بانك الجوغة الله يا أشيقة تنتا أشان ليان نهوي سمسمي صباح نوري هذو كل كليو كلوم بدني هذو حاجة كجيرة حسوس بدني صاحيب تا عشا عشا قلات ديلي أقو دم بيستنا أنا يقيلوبا أقو بنام بحن ونقي أردني نبض بريني مريكن والاقا سوايي مريكن والاقا سوايي مريكن والاقا سوايي ونقي أردني نبض بريني مريكن والاقا سوايي مريكن والاقا سوايي مريكن والاقا سوايي There are certain things fresh and certain things mesh I got my own sound, I don't sound like the rest And even my attire and my choice of dress And not long ago I don't spoke English The point is police pull me over a lot They wonder what type of rap seed I got And sometimes I take a young girl out to eat And hold the door open, oh you're so sweet Of course my affection's super illustrated And I like to give, don't reciprocate it Unless you can give me something innovated And let's cook it up, we don't refrigerate But back to this country of the educated When people get robbed and they celebrate it When I get older than but buddy name But they can't while like a so way But they can't while like a so way But they can't while like a so way When I get older than but buddy name But they can't while like a so way But they can't while like a so way But they can't while like a so way But they can't My country is of the sweet land for robberies, dope smoking SUVs, red meat and army greens, fat and frills, drills and spills, eat and sleep, pump and kill, shop to your job, work to your dad, get all you can, then get in the wind, out of my face, on your knees, sleep in the mansion, shut out the streets, make that cake, whip that trick, lick my swagger, suck my sick, get high, get low, get sticky, get rich, get your own show, get down, get quick, you slow, you blow, you broke, get fixed, terror, dome, home swag, home, terror, dome, home swag, home, home swag, home, home swag, There are some things pure, while certain things blur Diluted with the lie and you believe when it occurs Falsified information got my people in the stir We have to be in search of something equal to the cure Straight out the door, I come to give you more Lay the law, keep it raw, when I speak it from the core Get underneath your skin like I scratched it with the claw Conflicted with the rich, cause I kick it with the poor I laugh in the face of adversity Sound clash with the bass, cause it's natural to me But if you pay attention to the past, you will see Not long ago you blacked, they'd hang your ass From a tree, but certain things change. While some stay the same, some are recluse, others are lovers of the game. I'm trying to walk the lane, the Serato moves the cane. Instead of doing things that keep me covered in the flame. One leg in order, then I'm a buddy, then my day can't while like a soy. My day can't while like a soy. My day can't while like a soy. One leg in order, then I'm a buddy, then my day can't while like a soy. My day can't while like a soy. America. <laughs> هذو كيل كليو كلوم بدني هذو حد كجيرة حسوس بدني صاحيب تا عشا عشا قلات ديلي وقدم بيستنا أنا يقيلو با وقوبا نام بحن And that's our show for the week of April 23rd, 2009 Thank you so much for joining us and please tune in next week as it is our last special show of the season We can't wait to have you on board Thanks, as usual, to all the people that helped make Alert happen. Nash Soon Walla for the headlines. Karen McIntosh for Round the Left in Seven Days. André Clément for Music is the Weapon. Technical producer Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Saigonic. Alert Radio is broadcast 
on the Canadian Dimension National Radio Network. For today's episode, you can click on www.rabble.ca or go to the Canadian Dimension website for past shows as well as today's show at www.canadiandimension.com. <laughs>